2: So I'm wondering, should we begin this episode with you coughing into the mic here, uh, you know, to uh, uh, create the ambiance that we're having in this episode?
1: Yep, it's official. Uh, should I should I do it?
2: <coughs> yeah, <coughs> there, yeah we go. there you go. Germs flying everywhere.
1: <laughs>
2: it's, it's a good thing you're
1: in seclusion right now. That's right. I am live from uh, my isolation chamber here in uh, Oak Park, Illinois. Yeah, I uh, I caught COVID. I uh, you got it. It was, um, you know, humorous timing for this episode in particular. I I would love to say that I caught COVID from listening to John Mayer, but um, I I, got to be factually accurate, and I hadn't even listened to the album before I tested positive. But, uh, you know, spending the last, let's see, I'm on day six here of being in isolation. And, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, I imagined what it would be like. To be in isolation with COVID, and I did not imagine listening to, uh, you know, most of the catalog of uh, Johnny B. Mayer <laughs> while I'm alone in my room. <laughs> you went, you went,
2: you went full bore. I, I feel like you having COVID, it was just an excuse for you to not just listen to the album we're going to be talking about today, but to really dive in because you have nothing else to do. So you're like. Do I just sit here and do nothing, or do I check out Room for Squares? Right. Like the, the the alternative now that I'm in COVID isolation, Room for Squares <laughs> might be pretty good. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm open to it now.
1: Right. Yeah. It's uh. We'll 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 circle back to this at the end. But I I can't quite tell if this experience softened me up for the John Mayer experience, or you know raised up my barriers even more. Because uh, as I texted you, I think in the middle of last week, I was. Gravitating mostly towards, you know, musical comfort food. Just trying to make myself feel better. I didn't get it that bad. I have pretty mild symptoms, but, uh, you know, I was listening to a lot of my favorite albums just to pass the time up here. And uh, listening to Johnny Mayer uh, talk about how he has the blues every day wasn't really uh, <laughs> qualifying as musical comfort food in my illness. So, but uh, you know, I listened to a lot of Fish too, working on my Fish ninety-seven essays. So it was. Balancing out the the mayor uh, a deep dive investigation with some of my favorite bands. When I was
2: thinking about you preparing for this episode, I was imagining Kurt Russell in The Thing. You know, <laughs> where he's in it, he's by himself. It's he's in Antarctica. Yeah. There's like snow on his beard, and uh, there's this you know alien threatening life force out there that he has to fend off. And, mm-hmm. That would be like the John Mayer metaphor for you. You're Uh, you're in seclusion, and there's this thing out there that you have to grapple with. Uh, It's uncertain, but you know you're not going to be able to avoid it. It, 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 It's an inevitability that you're going to have to confront this thing eventually.
1: Yeah, I feel a little bit more like uh, Barton Fink. Like I feel like I'm in uh, my hotel room, and John Mayer is John Goodman uh, (laughs) running down the hallway towards me with with flames shooting out of... The hallway. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been an experience. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, I was worried my wife was going to call an ambulance for me when she heard me repeatedly listening to John Mayer's daughters through the door, because <laughs> clearly I was <laughs> suffering uh, brain damage from having COVID. So <laughs> that's right.
2: <laughs> Look, he's, Rob has lost his damn mind. <laughs> he's listening to daughters on repeat. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because. I mean, I felt like we had to do John Mayer as the curveball in our fourth and possibly final season because we've been joking about it for so long. Yeah. And our show basically has occurred during the entire COVID era. I think we
1: maybe had a couple episodes before COVID. We recorded a couple before. Maybe, I think maybe the first couple came out just before the pandemic started. You're right.
2: I feel like we started in February of, of 2020. Yeah. And then COVID really, you know, it was March when it when it when it came down. So we've we've been operating under, you know, the shadow of COVID through this whole uh, series, but to just think forward and to think that you getting COVID would line up <laughs> with the curveball where it's basically me just trolling you.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: You know, where I'm like, I'm gonna pick the longest John Mayer live album. Uh, I'm gonna make sure there's some blues on there. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna make sure, you know, there's some acoustic singer song, you know, the whole gamut. Yeah. And that it would line up with you getting COVID. I mean in a way I feel guilty about it. <laughs> but in another way it also just adds another dimension to the comedy. I know. Of I, this episode.
1: I, I mean, yeah, I'll admit soon after i tested positive i was like this is this is golden podcast content right here i mean you couldn't uh, you couldn't have scripted it any better so uh it's you know, like
2: you willed you willed yourself to get covid maybe I like, maybe this, and we cursed at, it, at this it, juncture
1: we jinxed it a couple episodes back where you were encouraging me to catch it before our our summer concert plans
2: well um, exactly that's another reason why i'm happy i mean look i'm i'm glad that you got it it appears that Aside from being isolated from your family, which sucks, but you haven't been that affected. I figured you wouldn't be. You're vaxxed and you're healthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not a big deal. And I am glad that it's not screwing up our concert plans. Right. you'll, You'll be, you'll be, COVID will be a distant memory by the time those shows come around, which is great. And it lined up with John Mayer. I gotta say, COVID. You know, this is like the one instance of good timing. It was. COVID. It, it was. COVID is like oh, for like a billion, but like this is like the one win. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if COVID, it, maybe. I
1: don't know if I'm calling it a win, but a, a silver lining. <laughs> um, and and I think. I don't know, this is like the music fan's reaction to COVID. I immediately started looking at all the concerts this summer that I would have avoided going to, probably. That now I can just go in, you know, stress-free. Including, perhaps, I might. I don't know, I have to negotiate with the family. I've used up a lot of dad points here this week. Uh, But Dead & Company is coming to Chicago in a couple weeks. I know! Maybe I'll be seeing John Mayer just to cap off my recovery. I'll see him in the flesh.
2: Well, and... I would consider going to that, but that's coinciding with a family cabin trip. Nice. So, because I, 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 that's the it's the twenty fourth and twenty fifth, which will I guess that will be the week this posts. I think, mm. right? I think the the week our episode goes live. I think that's we right. go live on the twenty
1: first or so, right? Yeah, the, so, a few days after. So I might go to that. Uh, I'm taking my dad to see Steely Dan next Sunday for Father's ooh, Day. It's like the ultimate, nice. ultimate dad rock experience.
2: Oh, my God. Uh, a single tear just went down my <laughs> cheek hearing about that. That's moving.
1: So doing that. And uh, yeah, I've been avoiding fish tour ever since uh, they came back uh, out of fear of spreading COVID to my family. But uh, yeah, maybe I'll just hop on the whole tour now. We'll see. Well, and I don't know if we've talked about this on the pod, but there's that...
2: Um, Festival in Chicago in late August that Phil and Friends is playing at. That's right, with with, with Jeff Tweedy. Another
1: thing we like conjured into existence uh, on this podcast, exactly. Yeah, but that is the that
2: show is the day before my uh, wife's birthday. Mm, Yeah, and I'd have to drive six hours to that show, which would mean that my wife would wake up on her birthday and I wouldn't be here <laughs> and I wouldn't roll. Like, even if I left early, yeah, I'd get here around 11 or 12. You know, this would be about two weeks after our other jam band adventure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if there is enough husband, uh, collateral that you can muster Absolutely. to pull that one off. Yeah. Even after uh, two
1: years of staying home, I think that's, that's asking. Yeah. That much. yeah. Just,
2: just, just being like, oh, my wife's waking up on the morning of her birthday. But I am going to see Phil... I've never seen... I haven't seen Phil Lesh play live. Yeah, I have never I, seen him in the flesh. Have, I've never seen Lesh in the flesh. There, <laughs> there's there been weird things that conspired against me. I was going to go see him and Bobby do their two-man thing a few years ago, and I got sent to South by Southwest for work. Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly, so I missed it there, and there were a couple other things that I missed. So, anyway... Are we putting out the inevitable here? Should we just get into it here with let's, John
1: Mayer? Let's do it. I, I am uh, so studied up on John Mayer. So happy to to get this out and then forget everything I've learned this week. Every day,
2: <laughs> Rob has the blues. <laughs> at least these days. But let's 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 play those blues away with John Mayer. <laughs> All right, this is thirty six from the vault. Uh, I'm Steve. And I am uh, Rob with COVID. Yes, and uh, this is our curveball episode for for uh, our season four, possibly our last season. Who knows? Possibly our last curveball. We'll see. Possibly our last curveball. We're doing where the light is, two thousand eight double album by John Mayer. Again, we we've talked about doing a John Mayer curveball. For a long time. I saw some grumbling online about us doing John Mayer. You know, I feel like, and we'll get get into this in our episode. There's the masses of Grateful Dead fans. And then you got like the, you got the Grateful Dead hipsters Mm -hmm. who are on the internet. And you and I are probably Grateful Dead hipsters. We have to cop to that. We're in that crew. Yeah, I would say so. So I'm saying it with love. I'm not saying it in an accusing way. But, you know, I do feel that John Mayer... Has fully won over the masses of Grateful Dead fans. Oh yeah, the hipsters are still skeptical. They're taking shots, but right, I mean, he's he has really become this uh, star in the community. I mean, because like you know, Co has been going for seven years now. I, I know. guess you yeah you, you want to discount the uh, the COVID year they didn't tour in twenty twenty. Um, but there's a whole generation of people. Who only know John Mayer as like the guitarist of of dead and company
1: yeah, I think he he won the war here uh, <laughs> I think it's yeah it, it, it is it is over it's been clinched um yeah, i mean they were were recording this the day after they started this summer's tour uh they started it in Dodger Stadium. um the surviving members of the dead are not playing i think they're playing two nights there they're not playing two nights in baseball stadiums without John Mayer in the band and, and, and this yeah, and,
2: and just like how he's proven himself, yeah, you
1: don't hear To this community, yeah, I mean, if you hear complaints about dead and company it's it's much more often about you know the the tempos, right, the slowness, the dead and slow of it all, not about John Mayer, I mean, you still get, as you say, the people that uh, have never gotten over the fact that there's you know a pretty boy <laughs> up on stage with our our favorite senior uh, citizens, but um I mean I think he's I I haven't listened to enough Dead and Co to know, but my sense is that he has, you know, gotten better and better. Like he's actually progressed quite a bit. Uh and really uh you know, it's it's like a natural part of the band now. You don't think of it as like this weird gimmicky pick. Uh he's he's earned it. So, you know, I I, yeah. I hand it to him. We did our special episode last summer and I think, you know, our takeaway was that. You know, if you get over a few of the sort of surface level things, he's he's quite good. He's and, one and, of the more exciting things about it. Yeah, we did. I I it can't deny it.
2: And we're, and we're going to get into it in this episode. You know, there's definitely criticisms you can make of the, of, of Dead and Co. and of of Mayor. And I, I think we'll touch on some of those things. And I'm going to talk about this later. But I, I I am I do have to give him credit I for being such a big star as he is. And we're and I had kind of forgotten how big of a star he was. Yeah, especially in the aughts. Like mm. this album. That we're gonna be talking about is really from like his peak as a pop star right in the 2000s and it's also an interesting pivot point because it's also him really it, it's part of that era where he was really uh positioning himself as a guitar hero like really making the guitar a bigger part of his identity which right. i think began a few years before this album and i think this album is kind of like the culmination of that in his solo career But it is kind of amazing to me still, like how like egoless he is in Dead and Company, that like he knows what the job is, which is that I am here to imitate Jerry Garcia Mm -hmm. and not necessarily to assert my own musical personality in this band. Like even when he is being creative, and you know, we talked about this in our Dead and Co episode. I think he, like you said, has been—he's really, I think, adapted to that improvisational style, and I think he can play well in that framework, but it is still someone else's framework. It's not really what he was doing before. Right. Dead & Co. And, you know, you've never seen John Mayer be like, oh, I want to write songs with Bob Weir, and I want to play those new songs live, or I want to play my own, I want to drop an occasional John Mayer tune into the set, which, you know, a different musician might insist on that, especially now that we're, you know, seven years into it, and they're very successful. He's still... Very differential yeah. to the old guys in the band. And I think that is probably the biggest reason why they're still going and are as successful as they are.
1: Yeah, I feel like he's in the right now to work one of or two of his songs. And I know it would be controversial, but I mean, you know, seven years of playing with these guys, like you're, you're right. He's totally, he's been incredibly ego free. Um, sort of a theme I want to. I don't want to talk about it right at the top here, but I want to come back to, and we can come back to it a couple times maybe, is has it been better for the dead to have hooked up with John Mayer, or is it better for John Mayer to have hooked up with the dead? Uh, Because that's what I was thinking a lot about with this album, which as we'll get into is before he had even really heard of the dead, which is kind of funny to think about uh, this deep into his career. Um, Because, yeah, I do think it's had a really interesting effect on a guy who has a really interesting relationship with his influences. And I'll, I'll leave it yes. at that for now, because we got a lot of influences to talk about here. But,
2: well, um, and I'm, also just, just some of his career problems that he was having before Co. came along. Exactly, yeah. Which people have forgotten about, but we're going to bring them back up, because <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> yeah. fun to talk about. And I might make it uh, an
1: explicit episode by bringing them
2: back up. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. But um, before we get to that, let's go to our mailbag segment here. And uh, thank you all for writing in. Always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, if you want to hit us up, we're at 36 mailbag at gmail.com. Um, this first letter I'll read, this is like some housekeeping that we need to do because this came up on Twitter. Uh, and this person wrote us about it. I feel like we should just mention it about, and this is tied to our the mailbag segment in our last episode. Someone brought up that Dead & Co. did an all-woman set. Yeah. A few years ago. And, uh, well, I'll just read the letter. This is, again, this is from Michael in Dallas. Gentlemen, longtime listener, on your Alpine Valley podcast, there was a mailbag entry that led to a discussion of the women-themed set list from Dead & Co.'s Dallas show last fall. To give you a heads up, you will likely be getting some online grief about this. (laughs) And we did. We did a little bit, Um, Yeah. What you don't know, at the time of the concert, Texas had just passed legislation that criminalized abortion. Before the show, Dead Co. was selling t-shirts as a fundraiser for women's rights groups, taking donations, etc. Then they came out with all the women themes set first. And for the encore, Bob sang Liberty while wearing a cowboy hat and one of these shirts. And it's a uh, Save Our Rights steely tee. So for what it's worth, I would tend to say it was a major overstatement to characterize the crowd as going nuts for man-smart, (laughs) woman-smarter, which I guess we said that. So, yeah, so this came up in a letter. And look, we pulled the letter right before we recorded, so we saw the woman-themed set. The letter writer didn't mention that. We were just riffing on it. But, yes, we should have mentioned the context for it. So, yes, I just just wanted to read this letter to make sure that we've acknowledged that. Yeah. And yes. And it's a very uh, cool
1: thing for them to do, of course. Exactly. Uh, It's cool. Absolutely. I know, Bob, I saw... At some point, some photos of him at like, a, you know, a pro-choice march and some other things. They've been very active in all of this terrible stuff that's been going down. Uh, I still think it's fair game to make fun of how they uh, executed <laughs> the women-themed yes. set list, uh, which is basically yeah, what we did. Uh, with we're, we're just saying, like, play Bertha, play Bertha <laughs> exactly. It was, you know, that's <laughs>
2: all we're saying. We're, you know, but yes, it, 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 we should have acknowledged the context, which we didn't know. Because we don't know anything on this show. I mean that's just the way it is. We're light We're on listening. research,
1: unless it's a uh, John light. Mayer's catalog.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> then, then we go crazy. Uh so yeah, so so thank you, Michael, uh from Dallas, uh, for pointing that out to us. Uh do you want to read our second letter?
1: Yeah, so this one's coming from Dustin in Wisconsin Rapids. Where is Wisconsin Ooh. Rapids, Steve?
2: Uh it's like in the middle of the state. Okay. It, uh that's all I have to say about Wisconsin Rapids, okay. but yeah, it's a, yeah, it's. A, I don't know if there's like actually rapids there. Yeah, presumably there are, but you know, Wisconsin not necessarily a rapids well, rich state.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of the Dells more than anything. Like that would be a good uh, water park name <laughs> for the Wisconsin. That's Dells. True, um, but hey, Wisconsin Rapids, I love it. Sounds good. Uh, Dustin has some Wisconsin centric. Uh, feedback for us as well uh, in relation to our Alpine Valley episode. Uh, He writes, I thought I would add in my two cents about why so few major touring acts play at Alpine Valley. While the various points you guys brought up, including location, convenience, their tendency to avoid pop acts, are all great ones, I think another important factor is their lack of infrastructure and upgrades over the years of operating the venue. Even when Fish plays there, they aren't able to use their full moving light rig. I forgot about that, and... It may be a little bit bummed for for August. Just a little bit. Just 1%. But uh, it it does kind of suck that their rate can't move around. Anyway, uh, I would imagine the large pop acts like you mentioned in T-Swift or Harry Styles have a far too elaborate stage light show for it to work at Alpine. Looks like your dreams of rolling down the hill during Watermelon Sugar will have to continue to be (laughs) dreams. (laughs) Love the show, especially as a born and raised Midwesterner. It's nice to hear some familiar sounding voices. Uh, I think he means our accents. Talking about my favorite bands. Free goose stickers for Steve if I run into you guys on lot at Alpine for Fish. So I don't, oh I don't, I don't get any goose stickers?
2: <laughs> well, I'll share, I'll share mine with you. Uh, <laughs> okay. Got to get you into the flock, uh, Rob. <laughs> um, Dustin, great letter. That, that's a great point. Uh, and you, you can see that when you go see shows at Alpine Valley, Is as great as that venue is in terms of the setting, very bucolic, all the rolling hills. You know, the stage is relatively small. Mm. and uh, you can totally see why you wouldn't be able to do, like, a full production as you would at other more, you know, modernized venues.
1: Yeah, I think the Midwest gets stiffed on that a lot, actually, because I think Deer Creek is the same, where, uh, at least for Fish, the light rig cannot move around as it does in other venues. So we're kind of cursed with some older stock as far as uh, outdoor amphitheaters here in the Midwest, but, you know, we're we're humble folk. We like our lights to be... uh, just stationary <laughs> yeah i wonder like if
2: dead and co will go back there they haven't been there i'm trying to remember the last time they were there justin vernon that, the oh, Bonnie that's right. Bear yeah hopped up on stage with them i think that was 19 maybe mm-hmm. it might have been 18 sounds right yeah because because cause, they you know they've been going to wrigley now for the last several years But it would be cool for them to go back to uh, Alpine.
1: Yeah, and we saw some. there was some online chatter, too, that Alpine might have brought back camping in some limited circumstances. I guess I haven't heard anything about it for these fish shows in August. But, um, yeah, you know, if they could make it sort of like a festival destination, I think it would hold a lot more appeal for people. Um, I mean, it's still going to be great, and I can't
2: wait. Yeah, I'm excited to go.
1: Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, a lot of the big shows these days need more modern accoutrements than. Uh, I wonder
2: like if there's any if there's any money in like you know just doing a major renovation.
1: What, are here? you saying we should buy it? Thirty six FTV Incorporated taking over. Well, Alpine we're getting dollars? all the Section one nineteen money. You know,
2: <laughs> I feel like uh, a couple more shekels, we'll be able to afford to pony up uh, for Alpine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I like it the way it is, but. It would also might be nice if it was modernized a little bit, and you could have more shows there. I actually like going to Wrigley to yeah. see Dead and Co. and you know, like when Fish is played there and other bands. But I don't know. It'd be nice for a little bit more parody. It seems like Fish is committed to sticking with Alpine. like at least go in there like every other year or something. Right. Um, they seem to really know.
1: like it. They've played it like twenty times now. Um,
2: yeah, they respect the lineage.
1: Yeah, it was. For, I think, a week, the biggest concert they ever had ever played in 1996 was at Alpine Valley before the Clifford Ball beat it out. So uh, it's got some history there. And, uh, you know, I mean, they are big fans of sort of the classic rock era that it represents. So I think they enjoy uh, being the the classic rock band. Uh, They're similar to how they like Madison Square Garden.
2: Well, we'll see. I don't know people keep listening to our show maybe rob and i will buy alpine (laughs) update it we'll bring all the bands back there um let's get into the context of this album and again it's called where the light is john mayer live in los angeles this album was released on july 1st 2008 it was recorded uh, about i guess eight months earlier or so seven eight months on december 8th 2007 the uh 27th anniversary of john lennon's murder that would be <laughs> blake yeah. i always remember december 8th john lennon was killed Right. 1980 um one thing i was surprised to learn you know just digging into john mayer's past is that i always associate him as a berkeley school of music guy because he does seem so polished and he is a technician right as a musician and that's something i'm sure we'll talk about more as this episode unfolds because i feel like People who are skeptical of him, that's one of the things that they're skeptical about, is that he seems a little too slick, maybe, to fit in the dead's loosey-goosey framework. But uh, in reality, I guess he only went there for two semesters, right? like in the late 90s. And then he dropped out of school and he moved to Atlanta. And he was uh, in the indie scene there mm-hmm. for a few years. And he recorded his first album, Room for Squares, as, and it was released as an indie like an independent release and then Columbia Records re released it in two thousand one and uh you know that's that record has no such thing on it. Your body is a Wonderland, Why Georgia. It just had a ton of hits. Yep. And it coincided like with a moment where you had, you know, Coldplay was really big then. You know, there was this sort of like pop rock, like white guy type pop star like that a was moment. Yeah. Yeah, like where you know if John Mayer came along now, like there's no way he'd be as <laughs> successful now, just because radio and pop music has changed so much. Um, but like Rooms for Squares, it goes five times platinum, right? And then he puts out uh, heavier things, I think that was 2003, that goes platinum, I think three or four times. And he's on his way to being a huge pop star. I and again, like I think I had forgotten. Like how many records he sold at his peak? Yeah, he puts up Continuum in two thousand six, which is the album, the studio album before
1: this live record. That went five times platinum, and like without really any hits, right? I didn't recognize any of the songs. Well, <laughs> on waiting Continuum.
2: on the world, like waiting on the world to change, I think was a big song, and um, Daughters certainly was a big song. We'll talk more about Daughters later. Mm. Uh, definitely on the suspect side of the john mayer uh you know spectrum of music along with your body is a wonderland um but you know he was he was a big pop star he was also um i remember he was on like Chappelle's show yeah
1: i mean so that's like around that time so room for squares comes out 2001 i'm a senior in college And so it kind of hit at just the right time for me to be maximum annoyed by him, (laughs) which I think is part of my, like, grudge against him. Uh, Because, I mean, it's a very, like, college rock, you know, college party type of album, right? I feel like I heard a lot of that outside uh, in Ann Arbor, (laughs) you know, on the porches of Ann Arbor. Yeah, there's sort of like a
2: Dave Matthews band element to that. Exactly, yeah. like, Like a strummy type. You know, guy on the quad, it, yeah, playing acoustic guitar type music. That's what I associate him with, absolutely. Um, and it's a and then you have like the romantic ballad side yeah. of him, yeah. And I feel like the people who don't like John Mayer or just instinctively recoil. It's it's him in that guys, and and I think his voice mm-hmm. too, right alienates people like the haters right. They don't like the voice there's especially when he's singing those ballads like daughters or your body's a wonderland there's something about the way he sings that feels a little smarmy
1: yeah i mean they're two very um, gross songs already and then his vocal delivery <laughs> doesn't help at all <laughs> so it's really uh it's a real double whammy but you mentioned the the Chappelle show which is kind of what i started that Image of him, I think for me at least, and I think for a lot of people started to change. Because do you remember the sketch he was in?
2: Yeah, that was like, uh, it was like Chappelle was going wrong. It was like, uh, like Mayor would play like a little guitar and it would like make white people dance. Yeah, it was
1: like a black people dance like this, white people dance like this type right. of sketch. Uh, but he was like following Chappelle around playing blues solos basically on an electric guitar. And I mean, that was the first time where I was like, oh, maybe there's something more to this guy than just being sort of a fratty, you know, soft rock, soft folk favorites, like, you know, music frat guys put on to make out to uh, sort of thing. So I I think it, it, it was around then, even before, you know, what we're about to talk about is sort of blues revival. It just seemed like he was playing with a lot of cool people, and it was sort of like the move that some people do A lot of people try to do, and not that many people pull off. But he seemed to kind of pull it off where he just, like, started associating with people that were a lot cooler than him. (laughs) And it made him look cooler by osmosis. Because he was on a Kanye song. There's a Common song that samples him. Like, he got into this, like, hip-hop zone, even though he's never tried to make, like, a hip-hop crossover, really. Um, Well,
2: like, many years later, too, he was on... uh... Saturday Night Live with
1: Frank Ocean, like, the first time Frank Ocean yeah, was on now, Like, yeah. he appeared with him, uh, Channel Orange era. Mm-hmm. He's on an Alicia Keys album right around this time. Like, there's, like... I mean, he, he never seems to say no. So, if somebody says, hey, John Mayer, will you come play guitar on my track? He, he is there five minutes later with his guitar. Uh, and well, I think and- that keeps going to this day. <laughs> and so... Uh, but I think it worked in his benefit, because all of a sudden people are like, oh, hey, this John Mayer kid... He can actually play. People seem to like him. Maybe I should give him another chance. So it worked. And I think
2: it speaks to, again, how, you know, there is a disconnect a little bit between his image among, again, people who don't like him as kind of like a douchebag, I guess. I think you could apply that word to him. Mm. Uh, It it seems pretty, pretty definitional for him because of some of these sort of image things that he has. But then at the same time, He is a great musician, and I think musicians recognize that Mm -hmm. and uh, they respond to that. And the fact that he was also hugely commercially successful, it probably also made people want to work with him because he was a draw in and of himself. In this mid-2000s era, it is interesting because it does seem like he made a conscious choice. And I think he's even talked about this, that he wanted to downplay like the balladeer part of his music and Mm -hmm. really put the focus on his skills as as a guitar player and that begins with his 2005 record try which is credited to the john mayer trio Mm -hmm. who appears on this live record we're going to be talking about but they originally put out a live record called try and it was Mayer with steve jordan who is currently the drummer in the rolling stones right and he's had a long career playing with a lot of different people. He's also a record producer. Very respected musician. And then Pino Palladino on bass, who uh, has played with everyone from Lauryn Hill to The Who. Right. And my, my quick Pino Palladino story is that I saw The Who in 2002. And when I bought my ticket, John Entwistle was still alive. <laughs> right. and, but when the show came around, he had died two months prior And the guy playing bass was Pino Palladino, who, Mm. that's the first time I'd ever heard of him. And he did a good job, although not nearly as loud as John Entwistle, which is probably impossible. Who could be, yeah. Who could be. So, like, Pete Townsend just had to solo, I feel like, a lot more than he normally would have, which was actually pretty awesome. Like, I loved the show. I thought it was great. I I was actually going into it feeling like, this is going to suck, because it's only two members of The Who, and then they totally won me over in about a minute, mm-hmm. it, you know, j- j- just killed it. But anyway, yeah, he's
1: playing like, with this great rhythm section. Right. And he picked like, I mean, he could have picked anybody, like we said, like he's been playing with, you know, everybody who will play with them. Uh, and it's, it's kind of remarkable that he went with musicians, musicians, right? Cause like, I mean, they are like, you, you go on their, you know, all music guide page and look at all the musicians that the Steve Jordan and beato Palladino have played with. They're on, like, every record of the 80s and 90s. (laughs) Like, it is unbelievable how many, like, big, huge superstars they played with. So, um, it's another thing. It's just, like, you know, piece by piece, you're building up this. At least I am, you know, building up some respect for John Mayer, where I'm like, you know, it's kind of interesting that he decided to pick these guys that are, like, you know, real ringers. Like, he could have... Done a blues rock album with you know two anonymous people and it would have sold you know millions of copies because anything you put out uh, in that decade seemingly moved millions of copies automatically. But it 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 was definitely a choice to play with Jordan and Palladino and it made for a pretty interesting album. Actually, I liked going back and listening to try. I mean, part of what I like about it is that it does the like time fades away, running on empty trick of uh, it's a bunch of new material. Uh, you know, perform live like songs that hadn't been recorded in the studio yet. There's a few, I think daughters is on that one too. Funnily enough. Um, yeah. Is it, it, that's on try too. It is. It's kind of like an encore uh. sort of thing at the, tucked at the end, but you know, for the first like 10 tracks, it's almost all previously unreleased material. Uh, played in a different style than you would expect from John Mayer. Uh, very heavy blues rock. Uh, not, as thirty six from the vault listeners know, not my favorite genre of music, but um, you know I gotta hand it to him that it is like uh, it's a fully realized vision. I guess he's not just dabbling. And it's interesting because Try is
2: probably my favorite John Mayer record that he's made. Like you know the music that he's made outside of the of Dead and Company. Mm. I mean I I I think that record and Continuum, which is the studio record that comes after Try, that Steve Jordan. Co-produced with John Mayer, and I think Pino Palladino plays. They're both on a lot of the their, tracks. I noticed. Yeah. yeah, I think Steve Jordan is also on the previous record, heavier things. I think like that relationship started before uh, "Try," and then Pino Palladino came in at some point. I think that's the case. But um, yeah, like "Try," it's in, you know, it's interesting comparing that to what Mayer will do in Den Company because you Know based on what he was doing in the mid aughts when he made this pivot to more of like a a guitar hero type image, I feel like his model was more Stevie Ray Vaughn. Because when you listen to Try, and this is also on uh, Where the Light Is, too, like in a way, Where the Light Is is a little redundant to Try because there's like a lot of Try material on this record, and Try is already a live record, right? So I don't Think the songs are as good here as they are on Try, but um, you know there's these Jimi Hendrix covers, yeah, that he was doing. I think I don't think Bold as Love is on Try, but like Wait Until Tomorrow is on Try, and it reminds me of the covers that Stevie, Stevie Ray Vaughan did of Hendrix songs in the '80s, because Hendrix, because Stevie Ray Vaughan was also a Hendrix acolyte, and. I feel like Mayer is was very influenced by the sort of hard charging style of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray Vaughan like played really hard and physical, <clears throat> and I, I I'm a fan of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I like his guitar playing, and I think the physicality of it is what I like about it. Like he was just known to hit the strings with incredible force, and there is like a sort of kinetic energy that comes off of his records, especially the live stuff that I think is pretty exciting. And I think, you know, what Mayer did in the 2010s with Garcia, I think that's what he was doing with CB Ray Vaughan in the aughts where it's like, I'm a, I'm a student of this guy. And I mean, it's not as deliberate as it is with dead and co. Like he's clearly just deliberately aping Jerry as much as he can mm-hmm. with dead and co. Cause that's the job. Whereas with, uh, his solo stuff, I think it's more of like an homage to Stevie Ray Vaughan, but it is a similar kind of thing where uh, he's trying to kind of get that like thick guitar tone that Stevie had, yeah, like on these
1: records. Yeah, I, I guess I can kind of hear it in the sound. I mean, the thing is, with Stevie Ray Vaughan, and again, I am not a blues fan or historian, but like Stevie Ray Vaughan was already drawing from, you know, a long history of blues guitarists, right? Like, I'm sure he added his own. Voicing to it. Uh, and so Mayer is kind of like, you know, he's doing Stevie Ray Vaughn, doing Jimi Hendrix, doing like Muddy Waters or somebody. Like, it's like the, he's next in a long lineage where it, it's harder to do that with Jerry. I mean, Jerry, of course, had his influences too, but uh, Jerry just seems like so much more of a singular guitarist to me than Stevie Ray Vaughn. And that's not really a knock on their, you know, relative abilities or whatever. It's just, like, Cherry is a very unique player, whereas Stevie Ray Vaughan is, you know, part of a whole blues world, and there's a lot of other people doing doing a Stevie Ray Vaughan thing, I guess. Whereas there's not as many people doing a Jerry Garcia thing.
2: But I, I do, I do think Stevie Ray Vaughan though is pretty distinctive. I don't think John Mayer is is as distinctive, okay? Yeah, because again, like when I hear him doing blues stuff, it does bring to mind Stevie Ray Vaughan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more than you know. And I don't know like what that John Mayer personality necessarily would be, right? You know, yeah. again, like that's just the parallel I would make. Like, if you were to ask me in two thousand like eight when this record dropped, like, what is John Mayer going to be doing in 10 years? I would have felt like, well, he's going to be making, like, Eric Clapton-type live records. Yeah. You know, like, it seemed like he was moving towards that. And I think, like, in his solo career, he is still doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, I would not have guessed that he would have gone to the dead. And I'm sure he wouldn't have either. I mean, we talked about this, like, when this album was released... I don't know if he had ever heard The Grateful Dead. I mean, the story with him <laughs> yeah. is that he was on Pandora in 2011. Right. And Althea came up as a suggestion, and he just flipped for Althea. And that was, the, that was the gateway drug for him to get into The Grateful Dead, which, you know, I think totally makes sense that John Mayer would respond to Althea. Yeah. I mean, that we've talked about this in, other, in previous episodes. Like, I love Althea. It's a great song, of course. You know that's on uh, "Go to Heaven," which uh, came out in '80 mm-hmm. for the Grateful Dead. And I think we talked about this in the previous episode that it kind of sounds like it sounds like the Dead, but it also kind of sounds like Dire Straits. You know, Dire Straits is a big band at that time. Yeah, and I think Dire Straits. Was it also an influence on John Mayer? I think Mayer was kind of like a poppy version of Dire Straits on some of those early records, especially like heavier things. Yeah, There's songs on that record that kind of remind me of like a poppier Dire Straits, even poppier than Brothers in Arms, you know? Um, But yeah, it totally makes sense to me that Althea would be the song that he would respond to.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely the most John Mayer Grateful Dead song, right? (laughs) Like if you went through the whole Grateful Dead catalog... And had to pick out one that would fit his style. Althea is probably the one. Um, has he ever said what, like, what what did he have his Pandora set to that brought up Althea? <laughs> like, I want to go even deeper on this. Was he listening to Dire Straits radio? Was he listening to John Mayer radio when it came up with Althea? Like, the Pandora algorithm uh, got it, uh, nailed it for him? It, w- it was probably,
2: like, kind of, like, lightly bluesy classic rock. It was probably yeah. something that you would totally expect John Mayer. Yeah. To be listening to, uh, you know, in his own time.
1: I love it. It's just like it's like the most millennial origin story ever. John Mayer is probably a millennial, right? He's probably just a little younger yeah, well, than us. John uh,
2: Mayer is is one month younger than I am. Oh, okay. He so was, he's older than me.
1: He, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, he was he, born.
2: He was born in October of seventy seven. Okay,
1: so late Gen
2: X, like us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's so funny that like a musical algorithm. Is what turned him onto the dead. It's not like, oh my, you know, old music friend from twenty years ago passed me a tape of Cornell and <laughs> I had this awakening to the dead. It was like, literally, like sitting by his pool, <laughs> and listening to Pandora right. and Althea, like an incredibly slick you know, the go-to-heaven version of Althea, even. Uh Yeah. Uh, being an incredibly slick version of the dead, like, as slick as they ever got. Um, It's just, it's it's really funny to me. But uh, as you said, it's worked out for him. I mean, like, kind of getting back to my question I asked earlier, like, the, 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 the subsidiary to that question is, who is John Mayer? Like, does John Mayer even know who John Mayer is? And I feel well, like he's really flailing around a lot at this time, and even beyond that, because, like, you put well, in... It the... wasn't flailing. Well, I mean, he you just know... came up
2: a decade where he sold probably, like, 30 or 40 million records. But, so you
1: know, he's... you can tell how unsatisfied he is, though, with that. Like, I think he's... You know, even in, like, the monologues that he does on this album, uh, I also looked up, like... So this was also a movie, this live album, uh, directed by Danny Clinch, who has done a lot of photography for Fish, actually, too, so there's one jam bandy connection. Uh, He has this like super pretentious quote at the start where he's talking about like the the thing about people knowing anything about you before you meet them is you have to work to get people back to knowing nothing about you. Like he's got this whole thing where he's like trying to reinvent himself, as you said. And what he's trying to reinvent himself as is I feel like sort of like the easy route. If you want to be like a guitar dude, right? Like, (laughs) <laughs> this is this is sounding condescending in my head, but, like, if you're really good at playing the guitar, like, sort of, like, the path of least resistance is to be a blues rock guitar guy. Because you just get to wail big, long blues solos all
2: the time. Well, I would actually disagree with that, because I, I, how many, like, multi-platinum blues guitars were there in the 2000s? I mean, I I feel like going that route was actually, like, the not the path of least resistance. Well, I mean, no, not. Think, I, I'm
1: not talking about commercially, though. I'm talking about, like, artistically.
2: Well, I mean, the thing that we're not mentioning, and I think this is a big part of the story, is that in 2010, for people who don't remember this, there was a huge controversy with John Mayer <laughs> where he gave an interview to Playboy. Yeah. And, you know, and I think he said in, in retrospect that there was a period in his life where he really wanted to, to be perceived as funny. You know, it was like really important for people to think that not only is he a great musician, but that he's a funny guy. Yeah. And he would, you know, go on Chappelle's show. He was a columnist for Esquire for a while. Mm-hmm. I think he, he, there was also like a, like a comedy like talk show that he was hosting around this time. So he had this whole other thing where he was not just a musician, but he was like a media personality. Right. And he did this interview with Playboy where you can tell that he's like trying to be irreverent. And, but it just completely backfired on him. Like, he's talking about all of the famous women that he's dated, like Jessica Simpson and Jennifer Aniston, and being, like, pretty sexually explicit talking about it. I know there's one quote in there where he said that, like, I have a white supremacist dick. Yeah. Because he doesn't like to sleep with uh, black women, I think, or maybe, like, women of other races. Probably the worst thing in this interview is that like, th- there was this, there was this riff that he was going on about how he has a hood pass. Mm, yeah. He, he referred to it as a hood pass. And I guess that's in reference to him being friends, like with famous black celebrities. And, you know, we were talking about him being cool with Dave Chappelle and Kanye West and people like that. And then he actually drops an N-bomb <laughs> in this interview. Like he <laughs> drops an N-word in this interview. Right. Um, It's, like, unbelievable. Like, if this interview had happened, maybe, like, five years later, he would be finished. Yeah, yeah. Like, you read stories about this interview at the time, and it was controversial, but people were almost paying more attention to, like, the gossip about Jessica Simpson than him using a racial slur. And he uses it in, like, not in a derogatory way, necessarily. I think he's just being irreverent.
1: But it's John Mayer. Right. I know. And this is what Using 2010, so it's like right before Twitter. If this happens yes. and Twitter exists, he's done. Like
2: He's done. Yeah. yeah, it never goes away. And like people I think have forgotten about this now. But anyway, I you know, this interview it coincided, I think, you know, he'd been in the spotlight for 10 years. Pop music was changing. It was going away from Like like a white guy guitar player being a pop star. I mean, like that that was over. He had this terrible controversy. He's using racial slurs in an interview. (laughs)
1: He's a tabloid guy. I mean, that's like sort of what it became, right? He just dated everybody. Like he dated every like hot female celebrity of that era. And you know,
2: you listen to his. Next couple records after that, he put a record called "Born and Raised" and then another record called "Paradise Valley." The Grateful Dead influences are pretty obvious yeah. in those records. So this is what
1: but- I, this is what I love about this. Like, I mean, this is what kind of where I was going was like he's he, he just seems to be like constantly throwing out like you know hooks in every direction to figure out what is it he wants to do. So like the blues rock thing ended. He hears The Grateful Dead, he has this like, you know, big controversy. He like buys like a fashionable drug rug poncho, <laughs> moves to Montana and makes like folky records. Like <laughs> it's like he's just kinda like he's, he seems to be constantly trying to find, you know I don't know if it's like external or internal. Like he wants people to take him seriously, but he can't quite figure out what his thing is. And I, I and I I know I'm being dismissive, but I think it has a happy ending. And well, what? yeah, and
2: I mean, I wouldn't be, because I do think that he has a a personality,
1: and especially if you listen to his last record. Well, that's what I was getting, that's the Sab-Rock, happy ending I'm getting to, is like, I think he finally found it. <laughs> and it's well, like, well, to me, it's amazing it took so long to get to Sabrock uh, Well, because he puts out Sabrock. I guess that was last year. Yeah. And to me...
2: Because on that record he was really embracing like all these sort of eighties signifiers in kind of a jokey way. Yeah. But like if you listen to the music on that record, it's not that different from what he was doing in the aughts. Yeah. Like, it was, it was like just underlining it and uh, exaggerating it a little bit. But mm-hmm. he was like to me the thing with John Mayer the thing that this and I think I've talked about this in other like before maybe in our Dead and Co episode. What got me into his music was realizing that he is basically an 80s adult contemporary musician and that the things i like about phil collins and the things i like about like the early sting solo albums you know are kind of the same thing like with john mayer records it's like you know impeccable musicianship it's it's like a genuine love that I have for that, but it's also nostalgia because I remember mm-hmm. when that rec- when that music came out, and I I have fond memories of seeing VH1 videos like Steve Winwood, Higher Love, yeah, seeing that on VH1 when I was eleven or whatever, and feeling some warmth for that. Um, and I'm like, that's the that's the zone that John Mayer is in, like those solo records, and yeah. it, it, and that was the thing that kind of got me to understand, okay, that's what's good about those records for all their weaknesses there is some good stuff that i that i do respond to and i enjoy
1: yeah and uh, but uh, yeah i i think and i had this frustration listening to this record cuz i hadn't really heard a lot of those 2000s records and his 2000 songs and um i really like sabrock a lot like i think sabrock is probably my favorite john mayer release uh, you know and still is after listening to all this stuff this last week because i do think he pushed it like the extra 20% and finally just went for this like 80s sound um which I think suits him so well, and like a lot of the stuff on in this set and from the albums around this era, it seems like are kind of keeping that at like just like it at arm's length. Like a lot of these songs would be so much better if you just threw gated drums and a synthesizer on it, <laughs> but he doesn't do that because I wasn't I don't I don't know why. Uh, but it took him up until now, and I, I think maybe you know uh, something about playing with the dead is finally what like unlocked this for him that he what was a- capable of making an album that is just kind of like. It's kind of cheesy and goofy, and he's not really trying to look cool, uh, but it actually fits his style and his strength so well. Um, yeah. Whereas I think all the stuff that he was trying to do before, obviously he's very good. He's a very good musician, and he can do blues rock solos. He can do the country folk thing. Um, it just doesn't feel like him like being uh, totally honest with himself, I think, until Sabrock. Rock. And I wonder if playing with the dead and totally going like egoless, as we're talking about, is what kind of unlocked that for him.
2: Well, and I think it was also just the, I mean, those signifiers like the gated drums and like the synths, yeah. that's just become way more fashionable in the last 10 years. I mean, like True. indie rock reclaimed that. And like even like mainstream pop reclaimed that in the last 10 years. So, you know, if to go back to your thing about him maybe following people or emulating people more than asserting his own personality, I mean, to me, I think that's. That's another part of that. It's like he wasn't going to do that in the aughts because, like, music culture wasn't in a place yet where those things were being embraced. Yeah, and yeah. now you can do that, and it's uh, you can you can be cool and kind of ironic, but also also genuinely enjoy right the sonic textures of that kind of music. And I think
1: that all lined up for him, like in 2021 with Sabrock. Rock, <laughs> is what I'm trying yeah. to say. And I like legitimately went back to that, you know, this week and was like, I. Would, I like a handful of songs in this a lot. Like I would listen to this without being forced to by my podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> that's uh, the highest praise I can give him right now, I guess.
2: Well, let's set up the show here because like, we're we're running long. Like we're talking mayor. I right?
1: know we're. This is a deep dive into mayor. Yeah. So we
2: want to get to this show eventually. So let's just talk a little bit about the background here of of this particular performance. This uh this this gig again. It was in early December. It was part of. Uh, the annual john mayer holiday charity review i guess it was uh
1: uh i think he did two shows right it was the first Uh, annual and then there was a second one and i couldn't find any evidence that he he did it again so i guess sort of went out went out the door um so that's why it has this like weird format right tell us about the the format of it
2: well, yeah, we've got an acoustic set, we've got the John Mayer trio set, and then there's like the regular band set. So, it really does have like a retrospective feel mm-hmm. for like the first 6 years of his career, which again, in terms of him being a pop star was really his zenith. I mean, the next record he put out after this was Battle Studies, which went platinum twice, which in 2009 for a mainstream like rock record seems still like really impressive, yeah, but you know not as robust as like the early albums, but you know again, like he was already a uh you know an arena and like amphitheater headliner at this point, and most of two thousand seven was him i I think he did a tour like early on in the year, like in like late winter and then he went out in the summer again, playing sheds and arenas all over the place and and that continues to this day I mean. Even outside of the Dead, he plays arenas and sheds. And that seems like that's probably not going to go away from for him. And my sense with Mayer is that he checks a lot of boxes where you're going to get people that like his pop hits. You're going to get, like, guys in, like, leather jackets who like blues guitarists. You're going to get <laughs> – yeah. now you're going to get some Grateful Dead fans. Um, he does seem to be in that – I I feel like in 20 years he's still going to be playing – yeah. Arenas.
1: He's hit like the perfect uh, uh the perfect recipe of yeah, like you're saying, crossing across demographics. He has a lot of women fans, which I think you can hear on this live album. Like
2: Yeah, a lot of a lot of women in yeah. the audience clearly, right. which you know, for for us on this show, you don't necessarily hear a lot of women <laughs> no in the audience <laughs> at the Grateful... Although they're obviously out there. Yeah. You know, uh you know, respect to our female deadheads out there, but you know, it it, it does seem at times to be Pretty dude heavy out there, but not not, not the case with this show. Mm-hmm. Um, we should talk about – we don't have a whole lot to say about the venue that he played right. uh, for the shows. Uh, the LA Live Nokia Theater, uh, now known as Microsoft Theater. <laughs> so soulful. So soulful. <laughs> so such soulful uh, venue names. Um, this venue opened not long before the show. It opened on October 18th, 2007. I believe it was opened with concerts by the Eagles and the Dixie Chicks, uh, of course, the Eagles would be opening of it. Of course, you know, yeah. Very LA. You know, they were just hanging out. It's, it's in downtown Los Angeles, capacity of 7, of 7,100 uh, people. And it's mainly known as a venue for award shows. Uh, you know, It's a longtime venue for the Emmys, the ESPYs, and the American Music Awards. It's also hosted the pre-telecast Grammys. Mm-hmm. Uh for a long time and also several finales for american idol right have been so you just feel again the soul well of this venue here
1: and i mean it kind of seems like the perfect place for john mayer in 2007 to be playing right like he's got this sort of half celebrity half musician status uh so you know playing a venue more famous for american idol and award shows than like you know old musical like uh, achievements uh kind of feels appropriate i guess i don't know did he live in la at this time that's what i was trying to figure I'm out i'm sure he did cuz he has I'm a sure song about how he doesn't want to go to la <laughs> so i'm like yeah, right. so did he live there or was he i mean he must have at some point if he was dating like every film actress in Hollywood. Yeah, but. I
2: mean, I I feel like that's a very L.A. musician thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it would just to complain about L.A. Yeah. Uh, especially, again, Mayer being, I think, essentially a yacht rock musician. I think in his solo career, he's like a yacht rock guy. Um, and again, like, sob rock was him maybe becoming self-aware about that. But I think even in the, in the 2000s, those records remind me a lot of, like, yeah, rock records of the seventies and eighties. Um, so yeah, that would that that would be suitable to have very impeccably played songs about that are recorded in in Los Angeles about right. L.A. being a soulless place. <laughs> yeah, it's a long uh, tradition of that, right? Yeah, long tradition of that.
1: About what was going on in pop culture? Yeah, at the time of this concert. was well, So where? Well, before we get into that, where were you in 2007, Steve? I
2: want to get. Later. I would have been in Milwaukee. Okay. You know, I was with. I wasn't married yet, but I was with my wife. We mm. were living together, having a great time. I loved it. You know, like we were, you know, footloose and fancy free. Yeah, at childless. That point. <laughs> childless. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, going out a lot, going out to eat a lot. Yeah. You know, had just. Again, my wife and I always laugh about this. You know, we get up in the morning, 10 o'clock, you know, like on a weekend, <laughs> and you'd have nothing to do. Yeah. you got, you got jack shit to do. <laughs> and you'd be like, let's go get brunch. All right. Go get brunch. Maybe have a Bloody Mary. And then you go home, you take a nap. Yeah. And then it's like 3 o'clock. Oh, let's go to a movie. And then let's get dinner. After- you got nothing to do.
1: Yeah. Always to kill. Now the only way I can do that is to uh, catch the novel coronavirus <laughs> and be stuck in my room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: And you can listen to John Mayer records and, yeah, recorded and sleep, in 2007. Sleep until
1: uh, the gaudy hour of 8.30 and watch a, a movie every night. Oh, my gosh. What a luxury. Um, yeah, 2007, I'm in Chicago. I'm finishing grad school. I am going to work at the Chicago Tribune, uh, not writing about music. This is like a gap in my music writing life. So, uh, But
2: you did, though. You wrote the review for... Uh... Well, I guess not in December, but it's Sky yeah. Blue Sky. No, your, but your, your Woco uh, review was 2007.
1: I was looking at this, yeah. So that is what got me hired at the Chicago Tribune in a strange series of events. <laughs> my The the people who hired me wanted to argue with me about my Woco Sky Blue Sky review, so they, they hired me as a science writer. Um, but yeah, uh, by the end of 2007, I was no longer writing about music. The Tribune told me that I could not... Uh, Write about music while I was working there. So uh, all of so this... many of
2: your relationships are based on that review. I feel like. <laughs> like a lot of a lot of our relationships started out just talk just arguing about Sky Blue Sky. It
1: has opened a lot of doors, yeah, in a, in a funny way. Yeah, the um,
2: Dead Rock, the Dead Rock uh, shot heard around the world. Yeah, um, I got to say, man, just looking at what was popular. We're we're gonna go through this horrible time in culture (laughs) it was a terrible time you know like we we joke about all in the family always being the top show that's a great show you know i mean come on or mash or you know all these albums that we talk about like were popular when the dead were playing whatever show in 73 or 74 77 um you got some terrible stuff here uh the number one song in america no one by alicia keys that's a that's that's an okay song
1: yeah i actually kind of like it it's all right
2: yeah not bad uh mayor was on the record
1: yeah i i looked that up just uh before recording and w- sure enough what do i see here featuring johnny Mayer? There you go. Uh, so It's all that, over the place that shows you yeah how ubiquitous he was uh in 2007 2008 yeah uh also in the top 10 you have
2: apologize by Ro- one Republican Timbaland. timberland horrible song <laughs> um kiss kiss by chris brown oh great <laughs> Uh, terrible person. Uh, and then you have "Low" by Flo Rida. That's probably the best song here. Uh, you you crank
1: that. Yeah, you left out that so, both of those are featuring T Pain. Just to show T-Pain, you where we are yeah. in 2007, that every song, T-Pain, half the songs and, in the top ten, were featuring T Pain. There
2: you go. It, you know, got some love for T Pain. He seems like a nice guy. Um Soldier Boy, tell him crank that Soldier Boy. He's a Little Chicago, right? Rapper for for Rob. Um, you pulled out the 2000 uh, best of music list from pitchfork which would have dropped around that time yeah
1: i had to just cuz i was so detached from the chart music though even like i and i thought maybe like by doing that maybe that's more akin to what john mayer was aspiring to i guess was trying to get back to know. some indie credibility, but I don't really think so because it's like
2: number one was yeah. was person pitch by yeah. Panda Bear. I
1: don't, I, I, I doubt John Mayer's ever heard that. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, you know LCD Sound Systems there, MIA in rainbows is number four. Just to shout out back to our uh, previous curveball, which yeah. was right around this time, I guess. the the Radiohead Bonnaroo show. It would have been the next summer, right? No, it was the summer before. Oh, summer before that was oh six. It was before that record dropped. Oh, that's right. They were debuting those songs. So it It did. It did remind me that uh, another thing that maybe uh, reconsider John Mayer was that he had that cover of Kid A, which must have been like Room for Squares time, right? Early two thousands was like a B side, Uh, but I remember that being like an early sort of uh, Napster internet thing where you could download John Mayer playing Kid A, and he actually, like, you know, enunciated the words on, like, Tom York. <laughs> but it was a good cover. I mean, he has good taste in covers, as we're going to about. it. He does, to. And, and, yeah. we're, we're, and we'll talk about
2: that when we get to the record. Uh, number one album, Noel, by Josh Groban. Right, it's just December, um, yeah. Cr- yep. Uh, also, big as I am by Alicia Keys, which we already mentioned. Uh, now, that's what I call pop music 26.
1: <laughs> My um, favorite of the now series.
2: Yes, this again, pre streaming platforms. I mean, I'm sure streaming platforms just totally eradicated. Yeah, the now, the now, now company. series. Yeah, you don't need that anymore. The Ultimate Hits by Garth Brooks. Uh, Long Road Out of Eden by the Eagles. Yeah, uh, we, that's the song. Uh, have you, you've seen the documentary, right? I haven't yet. No, I
1: never have. What? I know. I gotta watch it. It's it's Jesus for Christ. Us. Yeah. Maybe okay. I'll do that tonight while I uh, sit alone in my room. Oh my God! <laughs> it
2: it I've seen that so many times. It is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> okay. Well, that uh, maybe I won't talk about. it. I don't want to spoil it. But they like the second disc, which people tend to overlook because it talks about like the reunion years. But yeah. I think that in some ways is even funnier <laughs> than the first disc. Yeah. They talk about the recording of that album, and there's a song on that record. I think it's called Busy Being Fabulous. (laughs) Sure. And I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Like They talk about the writing of that song. It's like one of the best parts of the movie. (laughs) Um, So I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to spoil it anymore for you. Uh, The number one film, The Golden Compass, which I have no memory of.
1: Uh, I read the book series, never saw the movies. It's kind of like a a Harry Potter-ish. Young adult book with some like adult things in it, but I never saw the movie. I think Nicole Kidman's in it. I don't know.
2: Okay, no interest. Yeah, I'll never see it. Not even on an airplane. I'll mm-hmm. never watch that movie. Uh, <laughs> Juno came out around this time, right? Uh, that was kind of a big deal. Uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, which I have seen yep, many s- times. Seen that one? Yeah. <laughs> David Cross was in that. Um, Walk Hard. Yeah, came out two weeks after this, which okay. is.
1: That was, like, the brightest spot in pop culture that I could find. It's becoming a classic, isn't it, Walk Hard? I love that movie. Yeah. I feel like uh, John Mayer's Playboy interview could be a scene in Walk Hard. <laughs> oh, man. It could be. Uh, great Eddie Vedder
2: cameo in that movie, by the way. Especially, like, the long... Ver- he, he gives this speech inducting uh, Dewey Cox into some... Yeah, He's given, like, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And like the long version of his speech, that's you can watch it on YouTube, is is great. Yeah. And the way Eddie Vedder delivers it Maybe is I'll, really funny. I'm
1: doing a double feature of Walk Hard and the Eagles documentary oh, tonight.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: Come on over. That, and uh, you, you've already caught COVID, so you can watch it with us. That's, that, that's an amazing night right there. <laughs> um,
2: okay, so this is where we hit rock bottom yeah. for culture in 2007, December of 2007. I want to read down the top five shows of 2007, 2008. Number five, Dancing with the Stars, the Tuesday Night Edition. Number four, Dancing with the Stars, the Wednesday Night Edition. Number three, Dancing with the Stars, the Monday Night Edition. Number two, American Idol, the Wednesday Night Edition. And number one, American Idol,
1: the Tuesday Night Edition. (laughs) Just the worst. A clean sweep. Of, horrible uh, yeah reality tv competitions that are it, still on the air today uh
2: i guess i mean american Idol's pretty diminished at this point yeah. i mean i guess dancing with the stars might still be popular it's like, like my, my
1: parents movie. favorite show yeah so it's still oh really it's still cooking yeah
2: um like ted cruz will be on there you know like <laughs>
1: sean spicer i remember was on oh, there God, like, them, yeah.
2: You know, just just terrible people yeah uh, so,
1: makes you long for the days of all in the family
2: exactly Well, it's a good, I guess, tone setter for what we're about to get into. So (laughs) let's get into it. All right. Let's get into it. We're talking about John Mayer. Where the light is. Yeah. It's only a two banger, but it's a it's a three setter. Three setter. And again, in a way it's like a greatest hits record. I mean, there's it's not a greatest hits record in the sense of having all of the big John Mayer songs, but it does I think give you a sense of the range of John Mayer from this period in his career, again like the first 6 years the most successful uh, period of his career, recorded in December of 2007. Um, we're going to break this up into sets here. We're going to talk about the acoustic set, which begins disc one. And I don't know if we want to go through every song here, but one thing I want to ask you about first, mm-hmm. and maybe we can go backwards from this, because like when I picked this album, I, one of the things I was really excited for you to hear <laughs> was was the cover of Free Falling. <laughs> yeah. The Tom Petty song. And I I first heard this album... A few years ago, and I didn't know that John Mayer had covered Free Fallen. Of course, I'm a big Tom Petty fan. Right. I, You know, Full Moon Fever. Uh, I've heard that record a million times. Of course, Free Fallen is the first song on that record. That song means a lot to me. Tom Petty means a lot to me. Even though that song is maybe overexposed, I don't care. I think it's a great song. Mm-hmm. It, de- it deserves to be overexposed. So I didn't realize this. T- this to me is incredible, even though... Like I was surprised by this, but then I wasn't surprised. Like I understand why this is the case, but like if you go on Spotify, you'll see that John Mayer's cover of Free Fallen has been streamed more than 445 million times. Yeah, it is. I I think it's his most popular song on Spotify. Like Your Body's a Wonderland is around the same amount, but uh, I think the Free Fallen cover. It's either the most popular or it's among the most popular. Yeah,
1: it looks. I have it here. It looks like New Light from Sabrah is actually beat it out. But right, it's sort of a recency bias. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think that was probably on a playlist. Sure. I feel like that's like a playlist. But thing. yeah, you're
1: right. It's right around. Your Body Is a Wonderland's at four thirty eight million.
2: So the Tom Petty version has four hundred and seventy seven million. So about thirty million more. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, barely but, beating but, it but, out. Yeah, <laughs> barely beating out. It's like neck and neck. <laughs> yeah, and. And I think I understand why, because if you listen to the Tom Petty song, it is a song that on one hand has a very uplifting chorus that everyone can sing along with. Mm-hmm. But like the, the the overall sentiment of the song is is pretty melancholy. You know, there's a sense of loss in that song. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy's talking about this girl that he once loved and he uh you know screwed it up and now he's thinking about it in this sort of wistful way. And the John Mayer version Instead of putting the focus on the chorus, it's about, it, it kind of like s- slowly rises up and it has this big ending, like a Coldplay song, really. And it feels like a more romantic song mm-hmm. when he sings it. Yeah. So yeah. I can see people preferring to put that on a playlist if if, if it's for their girlfriend or something. Uh, you know, like he, he turns it into a John Mayer song, basically. Right. Um, and I kind of like it for that reason, you know, I... I I actually don't hate his cover. I like that he made it his own. Uh in I guess in the same you know, it, it reminds me of that Ryan Adams cover of Wonderwall. I think it's a similar type thing where uh, you yeah. turn you turn like this anthemic song into like a kind of like a pretty ballad.
1: But I don't know. What did you think of this cover? I mean, I know you had me set up to like absolutely despise this. <laughs> um <laughs> but I didn't. Uh and I think. I think it's a good version, and I think one of John Mayer's strengths is that he is a very good cover artist. Uh, you know, I, I I listened to this record, one of the my missions listening to it was, you know, even though we had Heard of the Dead at the time, uh, and this is all sort of, you know, looking back at this from the future, uh, you know, what, what on this album would, you know, foreshadow the fact that he would you know, assume the role of Jerry Garcia in The Grateful Dead. Um, And there's not really much at all. (laughs) But the one thing, you know, in sort of a general sense I would give him is that, you know, there's a number of covers on here, and I think he plays them all very well. And does a pretty good job of, as you say, mayorizing it slightly. Like, he's not doing a dramatic rearrangement of the song or anything, other than it being, you know, acoustic and spare instead of a big Jeff Lynne widescreen blown out production um yeah i mean it's fine i mean i i it, I, I think he does it very well and I, I i totally agree that i can see why people would you know sort of playlist this version i don't like it as much as the tom petty version of course but i've spent 30 <laughs> oh, years with the tom petty version the thing that and I, I tried to put a you know a finger on what i prefer and i think it's that you know tom petty i think it comes down to the voice and this is where we're gonna bring up the mayor voice i guess You know, Tom Petty is not a very, you know, his singing is, I like his voice, but he's not, you know, a great singer by any means. And part of what's so good about Free Fallen is that, and about that chorus, is that it's Tom Petty going outside of his range. And that's what gives that song that sort of like desperate feeling that you're talking about. Uh, And it's really beautiful. Uh, John Mayer kind of sticks to his Mayer voice, right? Like he sings it very much. Uh, it, uh, that's what kind of gives it the more like downer vibes or I, I would say, uh, cause yeah. he, he doesn't, it doesn't have that like wild free abandon that the, the Tom Petty version does. And it makes it smaller and I think a little less satisfying in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Mayer has like an ingratiation Or, you know, he's very ingratiating in his vocals, like, or he's trying to be ingratiating, which I think can be off-putting for Mm -hmm. people. Yeah. There's something I think maybe a little too, like, you know, he's trying to be emotional here. Whereas I think Petty, like you were saying, like, there's that thing in the chorus where he's pushing his voice a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you feel like that, you know, the strain in the voice is where the emotional quality is. Exactly. And... But on the verses, it is like he's more laconic, you know, which is like that great kind of Tom Petty thing. Like he's, he's the Stoner dude relating. He's talking about the vampires on, yeah, you know Ventura Boulevard and, I, and that whole thing, and it's great, like, and he paints the images so well,
1: right. Um, and it doesn't that, that, that's the danger of John Mayer being such a good cover artist and putting, you know pretty good covers on this record is I don't think he's a very good songwriter. Uh, like, I really feel like that's his weak point. He's a great guitarist. I don't think like, anybody can argue with the fact that technically he is a really excellent guitarist. Uh, he's got a lot going for him sort of stylistically, even though he's kind of like casting on in a lot of different directions. Like, I think he lands on some good sounds sometimes. But he's putting Free Fall in two songs after a song called In Your Atmosphere. And it has a little parentheticals, L.A. song. It's a song about how he doesn't want to go to L.A. anymore. Free Fallen is like a, a great Los Angeles song, but you know, written by somebody who grew up in Florida, right? Didn't Tom Petty grow up in yeah. Florida? Uh, yeah. And, and it has like the most cliched like LA things that it's name dropping, uh, you know, you know Mulholland, Ventura Boulevard, all this stuff. But it's great. It's like it's like so like it's just like a perfect like shorthand for this very. He's sketching out this very rich short story, in like. You know the most sparing language and the most like obvious signposts. Yeah, Uh, I mean, like like the vampire. He's
2: he's referencing Ventura Boulevard, but like the vampires. Yeah, I just love the image of like these sort of you know dead-eyed scenesters just roaming around LA, or like the. The girl who likes Elvis and I know, you know it's so great and likes horses, he, like that kind of stuff. He
1: rhymes two with two, which I always laughed at. <laughs> like even when the song was first out, like it's like it's so simple. Um and it's like the kind of thing that repeatedly on this album I think Mayer is striving for and just like cannot get to. Cause like I I find a lot of his songs to be very dull. <laughs> very well both, I, both lyrically and musically. I just find them very Paid by number and and very unsatisfying.
2: Well, I'll say, like, you know, and again, we don't have to walk through every song because I feel like, especially when we get to the second disc, it's going to get a little repetitive. But, you know, one thing about this acoustic set is that he opens with the song Neon, Mm -hmm. which is like one of the early John Mayer songs. And I've got to say, you know, I I totally hear you on some of the lyrical uh, lapses that he has. I'm really listening to John Mayer because I enjoy his guitar playing. And when he is using his music, using his songs as a a showcase for that, that tends to be like where I respond the best. And I think Neon is an example of him actually coming up with with like a pretty cool riff. And that, yeah, I like that. I I like, right. And, uh, and that song in a way, like, it's like a more technical version of like a Grateful Dead song, but like I can understand hearing that it being at least in the same like solar system as the Grateful Dead, you mm-hmm. know, like you know, like uh, uh, people that would have been in their orbit, like a like a Leo Kaki or like a Pat Metheny or something. Well, yeah,
1: that was the joke I made in the notes. Is like before the actual song Neon starts, there's just like a minute of acoustic guitar soloing. And with with no singing or anything, it's just him sort of freestyling on acoustic guitar. And to me, it sounded like a John Fahey record. (laughs) Like, I was like, hey, maybe I'm going to like this. I can kind of get down with some of this, like, American primitive stuff. Uh, And then he (laughs) goes into, you know, the Neon song, which I actually didn't mind. And it's like, I looked, you know, I went back. I'm, I, I did my research, Steve. I went back. I listened to the original EP version of Neon, which was acoustic, and then the Room for Squares version of Neon, which is electric. Um, I think he was kind of onto something. Like the really, this is like I think the oldest song in the entire set, uh, and you know I like this song. Like uh, like I, I just got through talking about all the reasons I don't like his songwriting, but I thought this one was. I mean, the the central metaphor is kind of clever. Uh, Also a little icky, but he does that a lot too. Um, But it's got a cool riff. It's got like, I don't know, it it, it moved in a way that I thought a lot of his more recent at the time material uh, didn't really have much going for it.
2: Yeah, and I mean, the other part of this set that, and I don't know if you want to spend too much time on this, because we've already ripped this song, but Daughters is a pretty awful song. (laughs) And and again, like I'm like... And and you've been very fair to Mayer so far. I am more of like the Mayer defender here, Mm -hmm. but this to me is John Mayer at his worst, where you really feel, again, the smarminess of this song, where... It's about, uh, you know, like, mothers be good to your daughters. and
1: Well, it's more, I mean, it's about, more about fathers being good to their daughters. Like, well, I mean, and that's what right. makes it even grosser, I think. It's like, I don't know, he had some, like, VH1 storytelling quote I found where he's like, it's about all the broken women I've dated whose, like, dads weren't good to them, and so they're, they're impossible to fix. And I'm just like, ah, dude, this, you are the worst.
2: (laughs) Yeah. You're just thinking about this guy. And like, look, I'm not judgmental. Yeah. He was a, he he was like 30 years old. He was single. Yeah. He's a rock star, you know, all the things that happen to people in that situation, you know, right. Good for you. But then to write a song like that, it's like, okay, like you're like a, you know, you're a ladies man guy. And now you're talking about, Daughters, uh, I don't know. It's it's just gross.
1: And Steve, but it won the Grammy Song of the Year.
2: <laughs> I know it's that's crazy. Um, Again, the Grammys. Grammys like uh, one of the great institutions, right? Out there, they're never wrong. Um,
1: I I wanted to know, and maybe I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, so it's it, given that this is sort of a career retrospective. Are you surprised that he didn't play Your Body Is a Wonderland? And no, I'm not. Has I, he I, I like, like disowned it? Is it like creep for him where he just like rarely plays it and everybody goes crazy when he does but he mostly wants to pretend it doesn't exist yeah i mean i think it's one of those songs that
2: has become a punchline and i'm sure he's aware of that maybe he doesn't maybe he's sick of it himself Mm -hmm. um i mean that's another this like peak smarm moment for for mayor so you know especially when he got into the more you know guitar hero era you know i'm sure he was like I'd rather play every day I Have the Blues <laughs> rather than Your Bodies in Wonderland. Yeah. Um, th- th- that's probably a good segue here to get into the trio <laughs> set yeah. of disc one. And I have to say, you know, so I was very curious to hear your Free Fallen take. And I'm mm-hmm. surprised, quite honestly, that you are as open to that song as as you just said you were. I was also excited for you you to hear this part of the record because this is the bluesiest part (laughs) of the record. There's some blues rock on the second disc, but this has the most blues. There's actually a part, and you and I have talked about this. There's a part in the song, um, Out of My Mind, where he starts going into this long language. It's like a 10-minute blues vamp, and people start cheering in the audience, and he's like, Ah! It's a sign that we're going to be okay. People in L.A. are getting excited about a slow blues <laughs> in 2007. That's a pretty funny. Very much.
1: Moment. Definitely the funniest part because, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure you you can even tell from the crowd that they're not really that excited about it. <laughs> like they're right. about a tenth as excited for that as they are for daughters. So, uh, John, I think, is a little off in his assessment. But yeah, I thought it was funny that he said. What he specifically says is, all is not lost. All oh, is not lost. Yeah. <laughs> Which was, is uh... like, of all people, to be a rockist, like John Mayer is yeah, like. Yeah, I know. He's waving the flag. <laughs> waving the flag, man.
0: Let me first say how wonderful it feels. To know that it's 2007 and we just launched into a slow blues and 7,000 people in LA went nuts. All
2: is not lost. But I, I, I will say honestly that like this is my favorite part of the record. And and, and I and, and I said this before that I really like the John Mayer trio stuff. I, I I like power trios. Again, I feel like he was really emulating Stevie Ray Vaughan at that time, and he played in a power trio. I mean, they, he added a keyboard player later, but. They Were Power Trio, and of course, Jimi Hendrix Experience, and Band of Gypsies. I think Band of Gypsies, there's a big Band of Gypsies vibe
1: to this part of the set. That's what I got,
2: Um, And so, honestly, this is like my favorite part of the record. Even though, again, it is redundant, I think, with Try. Try, I think, would be the record. Like, if we were just saying which John Mayer live records should you check out, like, if I wasn't trying to make you listen to a double record, you know, I would have picked try like if you just asked me like what's your favorite I would have said try um and again like the like the long slow blues out of my mind I that I I tend to skip that but like I know you were making jokes about every day I have the blues I like that I I I really like this part of the set a lot I think this is uh this is really spotlighting maybe my favorite guys for him in his solo career
1: (sighs) well Steve I hope you're sitting down I can't tell if you are because we have our zoom cameras off today. Uh, yeah. maybe it's the uh maybe it's a COVID brain. But I'm gonna tell you this is my favorite part of the album too. Wow. The trio set. Uh I I am you know, that that is a relative uh compliment, <laughs> not an absolute. Um but I did find myself enjoying this segment more than the other two um when it starts when it kicks into every day i have the blues it was absolutely everything i expected it to be my worst nightmare of a live album because <laughs> it is just like uh you know i made the very tired uh ghost world blues hammer joke on twitter today but that's like exactly what it sounds like to me is just you know the the prettiest white boy you know hammering away, faking his way through an old blues song. Uh,
2: okay, but I'm going to dispute that okay. on two counts, because, and I love Ghost World. Yeah, If you remember that scene, yeah. the band is playing, Like the guy's talking about picking cotton.
1: Yeah, he's talking about plowing uh, your fields. <laughs> plowing your fields. Okay, there's nothing like that in this song. There, so he, there's none of that. He wisely stays away, wisely, uh, ironically, I guess, given the Playboy interview. He wisely and, stays away from, you know, the sort of uh southern black dialect uh yeah uh, so there's none of of that yeah
2: and it's not as like you know boogie heavy as like blues hammer is like where it's like really sort of like (sighs) screamy and uh
1: like humble pie but he's still john mayer and it's still doing the like just the most airheaded version of the blues uh
2: but like again like i I dig it because, again, it's a power trio setup, and you have a great rhythm section and a really good guitar player. And the thing about this part of the set is that it's probably the jammiest part of the set. It's also like the most guitar heavy. Like, he's not singing a whole lot. Yeah. It's really just him playing guitar with Steve Jordan and Pino Palladino. And they sound
1: really good. Well, that's okay. thing. I mean, and that I mean, that's that's what I'm getting to is like it gets better from there. <laughs> like every day I have the blues is my nightmare for 4 minutes and then when they reprise it of course at the end just to stick it in me one more time. Uh but almost all the stuff in between I actually really enjoyed and it's because I mean, Pino Bellatino and Steve Jordan are great. Uh and they bring the best out of John Mayer too. Like he is playing I noted it it, it. it seemed to me like he was playing more out of the box here, right? Like he's playing noisier solos. He's playing more interesting guitar than I think he tends to do. I mean, a lot. He wrote a lot of these songs still. I mean, there's a couple covers in here, but it's still like I know he wrote some of them collaboratively with Jordan and Palladino. Um, I don't know. It just seems like he is feels a lot more free in this set than he does in the other two sets. And I circle back to my point, like being part of Dedenco, I think has freed him up to be a much better musician and maybe understand himself a little more. And like, he's benefited a lot from playing with older people with, you know, really accomplished people and, you know, not being, you know, John Mayer in quotes, uh, being just a really good guitarist in a really good band.
2: Yeah. I mean, in we keep hitting on this and it's pretty clear that like you and I, like if we're going to do the good points of what we like about John Mayer, it really begins and ends with his guitar playing. <laughs> he's a really good technician. He's a, he's just a good player. And when he's in a situation where he gets to play a, a lot of guitar, which he does in a power trio, you know, because it's just, he's providing all the music. I mean, you've got like the rhythm section, but like it just for any guitar player, if you're just with a, bass player and a drummer it is going to allow you to stretch out and and play a lot more than when we get to the second disc that's his solo band and you've got it is more again like a like an Eric Clapton I think type setup like where you've got these excellent musicians you know you've got backing singers and you've got horn players and you've got other things going on here it's pretty stripped down it's only up to him to play you know one thing we didn't talk about earlier was that, as I think, Mayer was woodshedding, getting ready for Dead and Company to launch after Fairly Well in, t- in twenty fifteen. Because I, I think him and we had already talked about Mayer joining Dead and Co. after Fairly Well happened. Like he was learning songs at that, that summer already, and you found this clip that. Uh, Mayor played with with Phil and Friends.
1: Yeah, at Phil's restaurant. At Phil's restaurant
2: in June of 2015, mm-hmm. and they did like a straight up replication of the Cornell show, like down to like the stage pattern, <laughs> right? Which is kind of creepy. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting in that show that like there were three guitarists on stage, mm-hmm. including Mayor, and Mayor was the only one who didn't sing. Yeah, at that at that
1: show. I think that was around the time you might have been having his like vocal cord issues too which I learned about in my extensive research that he couldn't sing for a while. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, people should look up that video, especially in light of where he is now with Dead and Company, because I found it very charming how out of place John Mayer is (laughs) in that set. I mean, other than Phil, he's playing with a bunch of nobodies. Like, I think Scott Metzger's up there was the only other name I recognized who's in J-Rad. Um, was J. Red going
2: yet in 2015? I don't I think, think so. If, no, they no they were they were going. If they were, it was just
1: like they were playing a, you know a show here and there. It wasn't like a full time thing. I remember the only
2: time they played Minneapolis so far was in 2015. It was right before I moved here, mm-hmm. so they played First Avenue, I think, and probably no one showed up, and that's why they haven't been back. <laughs> Which is sad. I, I want to see J. Red. I've not yeah. seen
1: them yet. But, but as you mentioned, there's two other guitarists who clearly play the Grateful Dead all the time, and they do all the singing. And John is just like he's in the middle of the stage, but he's clearly just trying to like keep up. <laughs> like he is like, uh, I think just learning the material. He's not singing. He is having a blast. It looks like. But he is not the band leader at all. Like, he is just a sideman. Uh, and then I, I didn't watch the whole show, but I watched The Scarlet Fire, of course. Um, and they they're, they all take turns taking guitar solos, basically. They take turns being Jerry. Uh, and it gets to the end of Fire on the Mountain. Uh, and John Mayer takes the last guitar solo. And he plays this like really over the top blues rock guitar solo. It's like it's right out of this like trio set, Uh, and it sounds totally wrong for "Fire on the Mountain," but at the same time, it it kind of sounds great (laughs) (laughs) because I've heard so many versions of "Fire on the Mountain." I know exactly what it's what everybody's going to do with it, whether it's Jerry or whether it's like a dead tribute type of thing, Uh, and it's just like hey, this guy can actually bring something new to this. And he's doing it because I think he's just so, at that time, so new to the dead. And so uh, just still learning like what people expect. Uh, so I actually, I, I found myself really liking him more having watched that because it was so endearing to see him as like a fish out of water in, that, in those circumstances.
2: Yeah, and again, just like the ego-free part of it—that, like you said, when I watched it, I felt like, oh, he's having a good time up here. Yeah, but he's also deferring to these other guitar players who are great guitar players, but they're nowhere near as accomplished or as famous, famous yeah. as as John Mayer, um, and. I don't know I, I I'm sure this hadn't happened yet like cuz I cuz I I read this there was a there was a Guitar World feature on like how John Mayer had a guitar built specifically for Dead & Co that so he could get the tone that Jerry has and it's like and 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 just like all the preamps that he's using and like all the gadgetry very much modeled on what Jerry did and for people out there who are like I don't want to listen to a John Mayer uh solo live record it is interesting to compare his tone Mm -hmm. here to like what he gets with the dead because it is pretty different Mm -hmm. and it shows and again you can can look at this either way that this is you can compliment John Mayer and you can criticize him for this that like he is so uh, you know willing to emulate this guy who died you know over 25 years ago And it's great, because that's what people want. But then it's also like, to go back to the question you asked before, like, who is John Mayer? Right. And like, would it be better to have a player who would maybe assert more of their personality? Like, we've talked about Trey. Yeah. He playing at Fair Thee Well, and he was great. But he would have asserted more of his personality. He's a strong, he's a band leader himself. He's got a very distinctive personality musically. Um but you know, that's not what Dead and Company is. Dead and Company is a and I say this with love because I've enjoyed seeing them, but they're a cover band. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're covering the dead. They're not doing new music. They they jam really well, but you know, they're not a creative band in, in the sense of creating new music together or changing what the dead is. Right. Like moving it in a different direction. Like they are emulating or they're they're car- you know, they're doing what they do and what they've done in the past. There's nothing, there's no new direction that they're seeking to go in.
1: Yeah. But what I do think, when I mentioned earlier at the top that I think John Mayer has definitely progressed within Dead & Company over these seven years, what I heard from them early on, uh, he was very much trying to do a Jerry impression. So like, I think as he got into the Dead & Company thing, it was very much like, I need to sound like Jerry, I need to give the fans... The, the, the same vibes. I know there was a lot of criticism of him even playing certain licks that Jerry would play in certain songs and things like that. Uh, he's coming after Trey, who, like, I, I think I've said this before on this show, but the best thing about Fare The Well is that Trey just nailed the balance between sounding like Jerry, but also sounding like Trey. Like, not giving up his own personality, but also giving people sort of the Jerry feeling that they wanted. And it's taken John Mayer more time to get to that point, but I think he's gotten there. And I think you know that's what jumped out to me at the Wrigley Field show is like, even though John Mayer is kind of a chameleon figure as a guitar player and can sound like so many different guitar greats of rock past, like he is. I think bringing his own flavor to Dead and Company now even without playing his own songs, like within the songs, like him and Kementi are kind of the most interesting part of Dead & Company. Because within that box, they're kind of forming their own language and having their own conversations that can be the most surprising part of those shows and the most Well, we
2: talked about that in our Dead & Company episode that it was like dudes rock between John and Jeff at the Wrigley Field shows. Like they were just digging each other. And really like they were... They were the MVPs right. of those shows, and John Mayer. Like I mean, were...
1: He's a he's a collaborator. Like I, I got to hand it to him because he could be, you know, a total prima donna, based on his commercial success and you know the the circles he ran in in the two thousands. But he seems to really love, you know, being part of a band and playing with good musicians, and that's why the trio set I think is quite good uh, and like has you know my favorite moments on the record.
2: You know, speaking of Trey, I had to laugh because you texted me when you started listening to this record. You're like, you didn't mention that he's doing a fish cover <laughs> on this record. Because well, it's funny because he he plays bold as love, the Jimi Hendrix song, which is also a song that Fish has covered many times. It's also funny that there's a song called Vultures right before that, yeah, which is not the Fish song, but you know, there's a, I mean, really, because the, the the Fish Vultures. Exist in 2007? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I'm writing about oh, it right it? Okay. now. It debuted in '97. Um, oh, did it? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know. It went back that far. Yeah, yeah. It's an older song. Um, okay. I will say before we get into the Hendrix discussion that uh, John Mayer's "Vultures" I think is my favorite song on this whole record. I thought that was a good song. Yeah, and it's a tune, and it's very different from the rest of the record. And it's actually almost kind of surprising that it came out of the trio uh, because it sounds a little bit more sob rocky to me than a lot of this other stuff um i, it, I think it's pointing toward a uh, continuum too <laughs> it has like a
2: similar kind of like soulful rock yacht rock type vibe
1: yeah i think with the it, and it's got him singing in falsetto which i mean again i think Mayer needs to get out of his like soft rock yarl <laughs> that he does. I know that's his thing, but like the the more he can get himself away from that comfort zone with his voice, I think the better it is. I
2: agree. I think that's a good song. I mean, I I also like the more blues rock tunes on mm-hmm. this that are from Try, like Good Love Is On The Way. Like that song? Who Do You Think I Was? Like that song? I'm, I like both of those songs. They're riffy blues rock songs that have like really cool solos on them. I think the band sounds great. Mm-hmm. I think, again, Try... The versions on there, I would I would give the not to over the ones here, but I like those. Look, I like blues rock, man. I'll defend the blues rock. <laughs> you know? I, I you know I've been I've been talking a lot about Stevie Ray in this episode. And I'll I'll defend Stevie Ray all the time. I don't even I probably don't even need to defend Steve, maybe with you I would not <laughs> defend Stevie Ray. Probably like, not like with not a lot of our listeners, the, yeah. Not in the general pop populace. Um but uh, yeah, Bold as Love sounds good. There is that monologue in there.
1: Ah, that That's what really kills it for me. I mean, he does a good job. <laughs> I like Wait Until Tomorrow better. I thought that was like a really cool, not just a cool performance, right. but also a cool choice. Like, you know, Pick, right. a, Pick and Free Fallen by Petty might be an obvious cover, but you got to go pretty deep to get to Wait Until Tomorrow. <laughs> in the Hendrix catalog. Uh and again... both so, from the second record. Both from Axis, yeah, Bold from and from Love, but a- like, that in and yeah. of itself, like most people would go to, you know, Electric Landlady or the the debut, not uh not Access Bold is love. It's kind of the weird Jimi Hendrix record. Um but yeah. Love I love mean, that record. It's it's a it's a it's a great I don't know, it, it it's a very solid cover up until the monologue, which is just like you know, everything, all the respect I had built up for John Mayer <laughs> kind of gets my feet swept out from under it because it's, like, all about, I don't know, how he's a self-made man that just turned 30 and all he wants is love. And, I mean, it's just like, dude, you're John Mayer. What do you what do you have to complain about?
2: <laughs> I know, especially, like, 2007 John Mayer. <laughs> exactly. You know, like he, he's having a great run at that point. <laughs> you know, he was going to have some difficulties if it was like early if it was like 2011 john mayer i'd be like okay yeah
1: i get it but no but like at this point yeah, he's rich he's attractive he's on yeah. top of the world he's just yeah. gotta he's gotta show up and play his guitar
2: he's he's yeah he's got like a line of women outside of his mansion right waiting to come in tons of yeah, millions of dollars he was living the life at this point yeah disc two here i feel like we're not gonna have as much to say about this one this is
1: the band set yeah this was i mean it's it's very consistent but i also found it kind of boring uh compared to the first disc which i either had a visceral hatred towards or a kind of ah, surprising respect for like that was i was oscillating between that on disc one disc two i'm just kind of like yeah all right here's some some competent music yeah, I mean, a
2: lot of this uh, set is pulled from Continuum, which was the most recent studio record. I think it's his best studio record. Um, I like that album a, 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 quite a bit. I, I Again, like, I hear what you're saying about parsing the lyrics. I'm not looking to Mare, really, for lyrics. I'm looking for the bluesy guitar that evokes... Across of Phil Collins and Dire Straits with a little bit of Sting, <laughs> in me if I can get like if I can get like a if I can get a combination of like making movies no jacket required and uh like the Dream of the Blue Turtles I'm dropping three deep '80s rock references there <laughs> soft rock references uh I'm happy and I feel like that record gives me that a little bit you know I was thinking that song Slow Dancing in a Birding Room there's that line. Do you know what I'm talking about? He's, there's a line in that song that always makes me cringe, uh, where he says, "You'll be a B-word because you can." Yeah, uh, that. Like, okay. ag-
1: again, yeah. another uh, strike <laughs> against yeah, it's Johnny like, Mayer's yeah, yeah. Uh, personal worldview and relationship to women. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to police lyrics too
2: much. Right. I, that's such a scoldy thing to do. But you know, again, if you if you if you're looking for signs of the fall coming in about four years or three or four years after this. I feel like that song a little bit is pointing to him being like, okay, you're like, uh, you're punching above your weight here a little bit. You're going (laughs) to get knocked out with some of this stuff. right?" Um, But, uh, yeah, I I mean, I don't know how deep we want to get into this disc. I feel like we've hit a lot of the points that we've talked about already here. I mean, I would like the songs kind of towards the end. Gravity, I Don't Trust Myself with Loving You and Belief. Those are all Continuum songs. I think they're good. Why Georgia is like a uh, was one of his big hits. Yeah, that from was, and uh, I, the first record.
1: Again, I found myself kind of enjoying the his really early songs in the same way as I like Neon on the first disc. Why um, Georgia is very Dave Matthews Band. Yeah, both of those are extremely Dave Matthews Band. I can totally see why he got that knock early on. I mean, the voice is a big thing, but also just that sort of jazz rock feel to it. But, I don't know, I, I, I he had something there. I mean, it's a typical thing where he had a lot of time to write his first album and then had to follow it up, I guess. But, like, you know, he's got some clever stuff in those songs that, I don't know, the Continuum, and I listen to the Continuum studio record too. Again, like I was saying, like, it's it doesn't hold up to Sabrock because I like, I agree that he's evoking all of those eighties touch points, but you know, maybe just because of the, the difference in time between 2006 and 2021, he didn't take the production that far uh, to where it is actually sort of, you know, in that recreating that zone of the eighties. So it, it, and then it just kind of comes off as bland to me, but yeah, I don't know. It's I feel bad for his regular band because the Paladino Jordan band is so good <laughs> that I'm sure all these people are really good, but they're just like they're not as good <laughs> as well, those like, guys. They they're more like, you know,
2: and again we talked about Paladino and Steve Jordan being uh studio musician ringers, but I feel like those guys also, especially Steve Jordan, he's played live a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not just the he's not just like a guy that Plays uh, in sort of a sterile way. I mean, those guys, I think, have like a real sort of live chemistry that comes through. And this, I think, his band on this record is really good too. Like Robbie McIntosh
1: yep. was in his band at this point, another big session who, guy.
2: Yeah, yeah, who was in the Pretenders in the '80s. I always associate him with like Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. like late '80s, like that Flowers in the Dirt era, like that live record. I remember, uh, like, my dad had that record, so like I know. His he put out a live record called "Trip in the Live Fantastic," <laughs> which no one remembers. But I remember, I remember that like, name, yeah. <laughs> but, like, but like I know that record in "Flowers in the Dirt." I have warm feelings towards that record uh, from '89. Uh, which is again, it's, it's like another like Robbie Mcintosh is like he should have played on Sabrock Rock because he played on <laughs> yeah. a lot of these '80s records that Mayer is uh, pointing to.
0: The top
2: One thing I wanted to bring up, and I I feel like I've brought this up in the past when we've talked about John Mayer, that I think you can make a comparison to Brent Mm -hmm. Midland yeah, and and Mayer because Brent Midland had a similar soft rock past in the 70s and then he got into the dead and he was able to adapt to their improvisational style. But you know, like when he would write his own songs and perform them, especially in the late 80s, it did have that michelobrock type flavor to it, Right. which again I, I love the taste of Michelobrock. I will, you know, I, I you know, the night. I remember like all those all the commercials were about the night and like, you know, guys in trench coats walking across rain soaked streets, right. going into like blues bars, uh, those commercials. And I have such warm feelings about you asp- that. You aspire I, to
1: that life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm
2: still chasing that, you know, In now that I am in my forties, but it's like, I'm, I'm, I missed the Michelob era, uh, you know, it was too, I was born too late for it. But um, I think there is a similar thing there with... And, and and that sort of soft rock element to the dead, which, again, and I say this with affection, are Grateful Dead hipsters out there. Maybe you recoil at that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it just wants to be about Dark Star and, like, you know, uh, you know, 1972 or whatever. But there is that element of the dead, too. And, like, I have a lot of affection for that. And I think that Mare, like, that's how he, to me, makes sense in the context of the dead. Mm-hmm. It's like... It's almost like he's like what Brent was. Uh, Obviously, Bruce Hornsby comes from that world, too. And we love Bruce, Mm -hmm. you know, like Bruce Hornsby in the range. He's like another person that Michelob era of 80s rock. Sure. Um, But obviously, he's a great musician, and he's like totally legit. No one would ever question Bruce Hornsby Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, But I think John Mayer kind of fits in that same sort of zone on the Grateful Dead tree.
1: Right. Well, they both have questionable views on women <laughs> through their uh, through their songwriting. Well, you mean John and Brent? <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. Let, let, let's exclude Bruce from that narrative. Oh, yeah, yeah, Bruce? not Bruce. Just John and Brent. Yeah, sorry, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. but yeah, no. I think it's funny that like the dead now, and we've joked about this before, that the dead are just going to keep going. Like, eventually, John Mayer will be Bob Weir, the Bob Weir role, and there'll be some other young dudes uh, surrounding him, and you know, Dead and Company Junior or whatever. Uh, it's funny though, that they can keep like recombining the genetics of the people they add to the band because like Brent famously was like, uh, you know, Donna and Keith in one, like we can get a keyboard player who can also sing the high harmonies. It's great. Like we we can, you know, only pay one person instead of two, but also have like, you know, this sort of new voice, but also he covers all the parts from before. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that John is like, um... You Know he brings the like soulfulness of Brent, I guess, the soft rock 80s dead vibes of Brent. Uh, but as you noted, um, somewhere in the notes, like he's also bringing the sort of bluesy Bob feel to the band because Bob exactly. isn't really the bluesy Bob anymore, now he's the Jerry. So, exactly, uh, yeah,
2: we we, we talked about that in our Dead and Co
1: episode, yeah, exactly. That,
2: and I never really Felt that way listening to Dead and Co. until I saw them, and it was like, oh yeah, like Bob is the Jerry now, yeah, and 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 now John is like the little brother, right? Who's like kind of boisterous, and he's filling that role. You know, there was a CBS uh, this morning interview that they did with Dead and Co. I think in 2016, where Bob Weir goes on this riff on what you were just saying about how he said he once had this vision or he recently had a vision where he was on stage and he looked over at John Mayer and John Mayer had, like, gray hair and then there was, like, a blonde guy in his 20s, <laughs> you know, on the other side of the stage and and he realized, like, he wasn't on stage anymore. It was, like, 20 years from now. Right. And, and that really is, I, you know, and we've joked about that, but I think that is going to be the reality mm-hmm. that, like whether it's called Dead and Company or some other name, you know, eventually the core four or three, they're not going to be with us anymore. And it will be John Mayer and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Ed Sheeran will have a change of heart. He'll want to join the Grateful <laughs> Dead. You know, who knows who's going to be in this band in twenty years? It'll be like uh, Travis Barker on drums, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Travis Barker on drums, uh, and they're going to be playing stadiums, right? You know? Br- Bruno then,
1: Mars somehow, like, <laughs>
2: just being, oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> yeah, and they and they and it seems like the members of the band like want it to be that way, right. and and it is again like this. Sense that, like, well, this is like folk music, this is like blues music. It's these songs just are going to be played and kept alive in the same way you know, people are playing uh, Every Day I Have the Blues, right. You know, like they're going to be playing uh, Sane of
1: Circumstance. That's that, that's that's what they want, yeah. And it, to to bring it full circle, that's that's really what I got out of this experience of diving into John Mayer and sort of seeing where he was at before. You know, he heard of the dead and before he joined the dead and watching clips of him playing with Phil and playing with dead and company and thinking back to the Wrigley show is that like it kind of warms my heart that John Mayer found the dead because I do think he's an incredibly talented person who was trying to figure out like his artistic direction, right? Uh, and was very commercially successful, but wanted more. Like he could have just he he could be Ed Sheeran. Like he could be churning out, you know, pop radio hits to this day that have you know like a drum loop and a guest appearance by Megan the Stallion or whatever on it. You know, he could easily do that. Uh, but he tried to find something else. He tried he tried doing blues rock, and he clearly loves it and he does it very well. He tried this sort of like a move into Montana doing country folk thing and then he found the dead and i feel like it's like it's just a great match because obviously it works great for the dead commercially they've had huge success and made a shit ton of money off of having john mayer in the band like like a quarter of a billion dollars yeah exactly literally and that's good they deserve to be paid they've lost (laughs) they've made fortunes and lost fortunes more times than you can count so i'm glad they will never uh, need money in their retirement whenever they eventually do retire. Uh, but for John Mayer, I feel like this is like, you know, he became a fan of the dead just like you and I became fans of the dead. And I think it enriched his life and enriched his music. And I think it, you know, I'm happy that he didn't make a solo album that sounds like a Jerry Garcia album, or, like, a Grateful Dead album. He made, I think, sort of, like, the fullest realization of who John Mayer is uh, in Sobrock. rock. Uh, and, but just feels, I don't know, he seems so happy to be part of the Dead experience. And, right. And, and does it in a very well, very tasteful way. Does it, finds his, like, slot, and finds his, like, creative satisfaction in it. Uh, and I don't know, I just, like, I think as much as I'm not I wasn't convinced to become a John Mayer fan by this album. I think it was like a really interesting snapshot of like, you know, what he was in 2007 and what he was going to be today and how the Grateful Dead sort of played a beneficial role for him. And, you know, that's a very cool thing. The Grateful Dead has has helped out a lot of people. So uh, that, well, that that's you. where I landed here. And I'm, you know, maybe it's the COVID talking again. I was going to put say, an asterisk here, on everything I've said the last two hours because I am, uh, you know, suffering from a, a pandemic. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a beautiful thing in the end, I thought. I was happy with it. He,
2: speaking so warmly about John Mayer, you and your COVID racked brain. <laughs> it's like, it's a, such a, it's a beautiful thing. But no, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think that if you... Look at this in a good faith kind of way. It, look, whether you like Dead & Co. or not, you don't have to check it out. But it's it's kind of impossible to hate John Mayer in this context. He's just coming at it from like I think like a pretty pure place and a pretty deferential place. Yeah. And uh, again, it might not be your cup of tea, but it's like, can you really take a shot at another Grateful Dead fan? I mean, I think that's what he is. It's it. I think it's clearly sincere. And, uh, you know, millions of people have enjoyed this music in stadiums and arenas in the last, you know, since 2015. So, you know, that that's a good thing to see. So, again, I thought I'd be torturing you with this. It seems <laughs> like you came away, though, with yeah.
1: understanding and warmth and happiness. So, I'm happy. Slightly disappointed, too. I could have sat here and, you know, played the blues hammer card. For two hours but nobody wants to hear that and that's that's not fair it's you know well,
2: it's, some people probably want to hear it, <laughs> some people probably would have enjoyed that right but anyway so okay so we're done with john mayer now right we're moving on we did it
1: we, we delivered we did
2: it rob survived he with trials and tribulations health issues can't <laughs> i can't hold rob back isolation uh and he's gonna he's gonna be rewarded now with a four banger. Yeah. And Dix, and Dix Picks 33, a four banger from
1: 1976. Yeah. I feel like uh, I am refueled for the home stretch here, right? Like we're in the, the closing straightaway of the Dix Picks series. We got four left. And uh, I'm really excited for this next one because we did 1976 uh, for Dix Picks 20. I guess that's a couple seasons ago now. And I uh, yeah. I really like that set. I really am fascinated by the dead in 76. I think it's a really interesting era. And uh, yeah, I'm down for these shows. And I'm uh, after, you know, an overload of just, you know, masterpiece 70s dead, uh, taking a couple episodes off has been good. I'm ready to dive back into the 70s now.
2: Well, I can't wait to hear John Mayer in 1976. <laughs> uh, you know, how he's playing. Was at that point, you know, when he, was, well, he wasn't even alive yet, he was like a fetus. <laughs> I'm sure he was a very talented fetus sure. in 1976, so I think that's going to be a great show.
1: So, thank you all for listening
2: yes. to this episode, thank- 36 from the Vault. We'll be back with more actual Grateful Dead music. Thanks
1: for, for bearing with <laughs> the John Mayer experience. We did it. Yes.
2: We made it. We did it. And, we made uh, it. It was great. We love it. Good love is on the way. See you in two weeks. <laughs> Thirty-six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hayden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of Thirty-six from the Vault is R.J.B.
0: So triangulate your
2: speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast.